now. Okay, let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with a karakia. Una hea te pōl, te pōl whiri marama. Tomakia te ao, te ao whatutangata. Tātai ki ronga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahurau. Omie, huie, tai ki Tēnā koutou katoa, greetings everyone, haere mai and welcome to the Matariki and Navigation Field Trip. I'm Shelley, the Learns Field Trip Teacher and this is Brad Cooper from Linz. Brad, do you want to tell us a little bit about your job? Um, so I'm what they call a hydrographic surveyor, so basically that involves measuring the depth out there on the water. Uh, we uh, go around, we use GPSs these days to measure depths and we use uh, sonars to measure depths. And we just try and make the waters safe for boats going through the water. Fantastic. And you can find out a little bit more about Brad's work on his profile on the website. So currently we are on the Tutanakai boat. And I'm going to scroll around. You can see that we've got our shields on the side here. You can see Andrew, the other learns teacher, filming. And if I scroll around, you'll be able to meet the skipper, Pete. There he is. Good everybody. And we've got Jeff from Lindsland Information New Zealand. They're supporting this field trip. And we are very much looking forward to heading out into the Marlborough Sounds today and learning more about the voyages of Cook back in his day. Great time to be thinking about uh, Cook's voyages and the first encounters because Tui are 250 the commemoration of those first encounters between Māori and Europeans way back um, is happening this year. So you can find out more about that by searching online and have a read of the background pages on the LEARNS website. So you can see there's a bit of water around. We've got some, some raindrops on the shields out there, but we're hoping that it's not going to rain too much today. And it's certainly nice and calm for our trip out onto the sound. So really looking forward to it. Um, welcome along to all you guys listening in this morning. It's fantastic to see so many classes listening in today. A big, big wave out and a big shout out to, I don't know whether Blenheim School is here, but I heard that they had a trip on the Tutanikai yesterday and they were looking forward to seeing the videos that we're going to make for them over the next few days. So a big shout out to them. And also, we have got our ambassadors, lots of them. So, who have we got? We have got a special ambassador, I think, from... Where is he? Anyway, I'll go through the list. <laughs> We've got Tiaki. And Tiaki is from St. Joseph's School. And we've got Kiri. Kiri the Kereru from St Albans School. And we have got Maya, great name for an ambassador. Um, Maya is from Pukekoe, Pukekoe Hill School, you can see on his little t-shirt there. And we have got, that's right, that's the one that I was looking for. This cheeky little fella here. This is Border Holly from Ninth Stream School. Big shout out to Ninth Stream School. We have had to control Border Holly a, a fair bit on this field trip, but she's done a bit of controlling as well, rounding up the other ambassadors when necessary. Uh, we've got also Tidy Kiwi from Morrinsville School. And of course, 
our cheeky Kia, the other Maya, Balloons Ambassador. So they've been having lots of fun on this field trip and you can follow their updates on the website. So we'll get underway with questions and our speaking schools, if you can remember to say your first name, uh, then we know who we're talking to. And you might see us bob up and down every now and then because we are underwater. It's very soothing. Um, and we'll get underway with questions. First question from Nightstream School, please. Didn't quite hear that, but I think that was the. Could you could you say it a little bit louder? Ah, well done. Thank you. How do we know where to find the Matariki stars? Brad, any uh, ideas? The Matariki stars, uh, they're the ones that rise in the northeast, I believe. Uh, they're the ones that, uh, so if you want to find the Matariki stars, you need to look for Orion's belt in the night sky. And if you follow that to the left or to the, to the west, you'll uh, come upon the Matariki uh, star cluster, as we call it. And you might know Orion's belt as I always as a kid used to call it the pot because it looks a bit like a pot with a handle but other people also think of it as a belt up the other way and a sword coming out um, so yeah if you look for that that bright constellation you'll be able to find Matariki um, rising I think from the 25th of June so it disappeared in May and it will be back with us from the 25th of June and we celebrate the rising of Matariki and the start of the Māori New Year. Thanks for that great question to start. And we're now up to question one from Nati Moti School, please. Okay, say hi, I'm Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. Um, what did Captain Cook and his crew eat? Oh, good, good question. question. Very important. Great. Uh, they they ate a lot of good a lot of good healthy food. Uh, Captain Cook was one of the first sailors of his of his era to uh, believe in um, eating healthy food for his crew. So whenever they stopped by a uh, a destination, they would uh, go and um, stock up on healthy fresh fruit and vegetables. And uh, they also ate a lot of stuff that could be stored for long periods of time, like fermented uh, cabbage, sauerkraut was uh, another good favourite. That way, they could keep their vitamin C up. Yeah, because what's, what's the disease that you get if you don't have enough vitamin C that was common amongst sailors on their long voyages? Scurvy. Scurvy. Just one to avoid. Captain Cook never, I think, on his, particularly on the first three voyages, he never had uh, anyone die of scurvy, so he was quite well regarded for his ability to keep his crew alive and healthy. Mm, and I would imagine that the Polynesian navigators had enough supplies on board and a balanced diet as well. Otherwise they wouldn't have survived. So you can see how important it is to think about your supplies and your well-being on such a long voyage. Great question, Alex, thank you. And question two now from Nightstream School, please. How do you know where where to go when the Matariki stars only come out one month in the year? Mm, good question. So, Matariki, was it used for navigation, Brad? Uh, at, at that time of the year, they knew where it would be in the sky, so they could use it 
for, for navigation, but uh, there are other star constellations out there that can be used for navigation, such as the Southern Cross. Um, you, you notice the way it tracks across the night sky if you uh, bisect the long axis of the Southern Cross. You sort of actively to the discussion, not getting all carried away because it's like, ooh. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> we're just we're just Let waiting for someone to mute their Someone's microphone. Got their microphone on. <laughs> but yeah, there are lots of other stars out there that they oh, that they uh, and uh, used as they uh, as they go on through their night. So they look of, uh, of where to go based on the stars. Yeah. So um, to clarify, Matariki is not only um, visible one month in the year is that it reappears in our midwinter night sky. So we celebrate when it comes back to us, but it, it sets in May sometime. So it's only not around for a short period of time and we celebrate its rise in the dawn sky in midwinter. And of course, you can find out about the other methods that Māori used for navigation by watching the videos that came online um, yesterday, so they're ready for you to see what we got up to then. And now we can have question two from Nati Moti School, please. My name's Alex. Kia ora, Alex. How did Captain Cook navigate to New Zealand and home again? Did they use the stars? Mm, big question. Thanks, Alex. That's a, that's a good question. Um, it's, there's, there's no short answer to that question. There's uh, quite a few methods they use to navigate, uh, one of which was to use this, this handy tool here, the sextant, so that, that, that you could use to find the angle above the horizon of the stars. And with that piece of information, you could then look at the star tables and work out where you were in the world. Uh, there are other methods they used were uh, dead reckoning. So dead reckonings, if you were to hold the same course and heading, uh, same and, and measure your speed, then you could uh, find out where you're going from a certain point or a fix. Um, they also use clocks um, to get their point of reference time back at uh, back in London and uh, work out how far away they were from London. So there was a whole lot of methods used. Mm, and we're going to find out more about those methods today and Brad is actually going to demonstrate some of them So looking forward to that and you'll be able to see that in the videos that will be online for you tomorrow And moving now to question three from Nightstream School, please Hang on a minute. I've just got to find them and unmute them. Things are moving around here It's a moving feast Where did they go? They've gone to the other screen. I can see them. Waiting patiently. Well done. Uh, where are they? Well, on my screen, they're, they're two cameras down from you. <laughs> they aren't from me. Oh, there they are. Hang on. Oh, yeah? yeah. But they should, be un they should be unmuted now. Hi, I'm Chloe. How did Matariki become a special time in New Zealand? Good question. Kia ora, Chloe. Kia ora, Chloe. Uh, Matariki was the symbol of uh, things to come, wasn't it? Um, so they could uh, brought families together, but also they could go and do their harvests, I think. Um, so uh, harvesting crops became a thing. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so if you have a read of the Matariki page on the Learns website, you'll be able to find out a little bit more. Celebrated in different ways by, <clears throat> excuse me, by different people. And when they looked at Matariki rising in the midwinter night sky, if it looked really bright in the sky, um, it was clear, crisp weather, and they thought that was a good sign of the weather to come for the for the um, following winter, and it was a good sign for the success of crops for the next season. And if the stars looked hazy, it was the opposite. So they thought that the crops wouldn't be successful. So they used it as a sign, and they also used it to remember their ancestors, remember the people that had passed over the previous year. But it was also a time to celebrate because they got to midwinter, they were thinking about the times that have passed and planning for the future. Also marks the start of the Māori New Year, the start of a new lunar calendar because the Maramataka, the Māori calendar, is different to the European calendar and you could go online to find out a little bit more about that. So definitely a time to celebrate, but also a time to remember and to plan for the future. So it's a good time for us to do this field trip. Lots to, lots to remember and lots to think about for the future as well. And now we're up to question three. And I know Brad's been looking forward to answering this one um, from Nanti Morty School, please. Hi, my name's Eloise. How does a sextant work? Thanks, Eloise. Thanks, Eloise. That's a good question, Eloise, and I'm well prepared for this one. Um, so a sextant uh, basically uses a system of mirrors. One, with one mirror, you can sort of look out through the site, or through that site there, sorry, and you can see the horizon. With the other mirror, you can sort of direct it up towards the stars, and it deflects the image from the other mirror, so you can see the angle of a celestial body, the sun, the stars, above, uh, above the horizon. So it's just like just like trigonometry, really. And uh, there's also these lovely uh, sunglasses for it, uh, so that you don't uh, get uh, bad burns on your eyes from looking at the sun too long. Indeed, that that would be a hazard if you didn't have those those um, shades there, yeah. cool shades. So, how old would an instrument like that be? This one here, actually, I was reading I was reading a book at home, and um, this one here is about the same era as Captain Cook. Wow. As luck, as luck would have it. It just happened to be in Lynn's archives and uh, we picked it up and I took this home and it's a very striking resemblance. So this was probably early 1800s, late 1700s uh, sexton. Um, the mirror on this one's a bit cracked, so it hasn't stood the test of time, but um, you, can, you can still make some use of it. Yeah, uh, and wonderful cool. to be able to see that and we're going to find out a bit more about that today. Um, certainly not something we want to drop overboard, a bit of an antique. Yes. Indeed. Thanks, Eloise. And now question uh, four from Nightstream School, please. Hang on, they've moved again. <laughs> it's not their fault. <laughs> Good problem to have. It means there it is, there it is. I've un unmuted them. Fantastic. What does the Captain Cook used to do on the map of New Zealand? What tools did Captain Cook use to draw the map in New Zealand? So, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a few tools involved as uh, this, this question links through to the, the uh, other question about how they used to navigate home, back home from New Zealand. And uh, uh, the main tools they used to draw New Zealand's coastline were mainly a compass, um, 
with a compass they were able to work out the direction to certain objects or the bearing to certain objects. And if they knew the boat's location, they could then work, and if they took a boat to another location at a different time, they could then bisect on those points. Because back then they had no method of uh, deriving uh, distance to a feature. So they had to rely on the angles intersecting to, uh, to work out where they were. So uh, that was the main tool used uh, when, they, when they drew the map of New Zealand, aside from a pencil, of course. Yeah, and there's a good explanation on the LEARNS website. And you can see, I think, the map that uh, Captain Cook drew. And it's remarkably accurate. Very accurate. And when you think about Māori legend as well, the, um, the legends of Maui um, and the waka and the shape of, of the North Island, they had a very good idea of the shape of the coastline as well. So remarkable navigation skills from these people in the past. And now we are up to question number four, which I like. It's a good question from Nati Mukti School, please. Hi, I'm Ruby. Why was Nick's head the body part they named young Nick's head after? Did any other parts of New Zealand get named after someone? Kia Ruby. Kia Ruby. That's a good question. And um, it's sort of a clever use of words to call it Young Nick's Head. Um, it, it, the feature that they actually named was called a headland. Now, a headland extends from the coast. Um, so uh, that's that's why it was sort of given the nick, nickname a head. And we don't really call many other uh, names after body parts around New Zealand. Uh, there's capes and stuff like that. But a lot of the names uh, that Captain Cook and... Uh, other explorers gave to features were to impress people back home. Um, usually there were prominent um, statesmen and prominent figures back home they wanted to impress, so they uh, they called, called things after them, like uh, Kate Palliser is after um, Captain Cook's friend back home, and um, Banks Peninsula was after uh, the botanist Banks on board the Endeavour, or Banks Island as he called it at the time. So um, yeah, lots of reasons to name things after people. Yeah, and it will be quite an honour um, to have something named after you. And back in those days when there was still so many lands to discover, I imagine people would have been quite competitive and, and, and chuffed about being um, having their name used for an, a location or a, a land feature. So it would make you quite famous, I imagine. Um, but having said that, a lot of these places were already named, so it's nice to see that some of our... our Māori names are coming back to us and we're remembering the actual first people that named uh, areas. And now we're up to question five from Night Stream School, please. What happened if the Polynesian navigators couldn't see the stars on the boat? Oh, good question. That's a very good question, given the weather today. Um, there's, a, there's a few other methods you can use uh, when, you, um, when you're out at sea. Um, so one of the ways they could, they could watch bird behaviour. If there are more birds that they know are sort of uh, not really seabirds or not um, birds they usually see far at sea, they know they're close to land. The other thing they can do is watch for cloud formations. Um, in the daytime in particular, you can see the cloud formations. Or even watch the direction of the swell. Because if the direction of the swell is doing funny things and it's changing quite a lot, then that's probably a sign that the swell's wrapping around the landmass. So they got very clever at uh, telling where they were and looking for those subtle clues that um, would probably 
fly right over say, modern sailors' heads because we have GPS these days. The other thing that's uh, noticeable is land does have a particular smell. And if you're at sea for long periods of time, you can smell land if the wind's blowing in the right direction. It's got a very, it's got a very sweet smell from previous previous experience. So uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting because. Um, it's like I've only been down to Antarctica for a couple of weeks at a time, but I always notice when I come back from Antarctica what the air feels like when I land in Christchurch. It usually feels a whole lot warmer and a whole lot more humid, and there's a lot more smells because down in Antarctica it's so cold that you don't really get much smell unless you're close to seals or penguins or something. So, yeah, you could imagine that if you hadn't, um, seen land for a long time, you've been at sea for a long time, you can imagine there would be a distinct smell. And I often say, oh, I can smell rain coming because there's a bit of a smell in the in the atmosphere where there's moisture about. So yeah, I can totally understand um, how they'd be able to smell land when they're out at sea when they get closer. Great question. And one last question to finish off our formal part of the web conference. From Nati Morty School, please. Hi, I'm Gabriel. Uh, what happened to the other people on Captain Cook's ship when he died? Thanks, Gabriel. Thanks, Gabriel. Um, I looked this up the other day. It's quite a story. So uh, there was actually two ships involved in, uh, when Captain Cook died. Uh, he, one of them broke their mast, and that's why he had to go back and uh, repair it. Um, there was only a small number of people who died when Captain Cook died. There was uh, him and a small contingent of Marines were on shore trying to um, trying to get the chief on board, and uh, that's when they were killed. Uh, the rest of them were either wounded or uh, were already back on the ship. So quite a lot of them made it back to England safely. Um, I think they fired their muskets in frustration at the shore and killed a few local um, people. But uh, and then they they went on their way pretty quickly. Yeah, you can imagine it will be quite chaotic when, when something like that happens and everybody's out to um, fend for themselves. But good to hear that most people got back safely. Um, unfortunate that there is those kind of misunderstandings that happen and they have a huge effect on the history of, of areas. So you can find out more about that by looking online. But fantastic questions from both our speaking schools this morning. It's been great to have you along with us and well done the research that you've obviously done so far and I hope you continue your inquiries into this amazing topic there's just so much to learn so we've got a few minutes now to answer any extra questions um, Barry in the learns office is going to um, handle that session for us because he's got the um, all the tools there to be able to handle what's coming in in the chat pod Barry yep first one um, was from Nahita, uh, were goats and pigs really needed to be dropped off on island for shipwrecked sailors? So obviously um, they've read that somewhere. I do recall reading that at some point, yeah. No, they, they used to uh, deliberately do that, didn't they? Uh, they did used to do that, but I don't think on every island. I think they did it on just one or two islands when they had the opportunity to. Um, it wasn't like a, when they saw an island, they go, hey, we have to go drop a goat or a pig on that island and that and that one and that one it was just an opportunistic thing um if they happened to be there or one escape they wouldn't go bother too much about catching it or something yeah and we all know that goats are great escape artists very good escape artists. i'll eat anything too thanks 
Um, I just see Tawahi has raised his or her or their hand, but they've got their question already in there, and it's asking are there nine or seven Matariki stars? And I see the backdrop I've got behind me. Yesterday it was unlabeled, but I guess, Sally, you've, um, after that trip to the space base yesterday, you've replaced it with a labeled version, and I can count seven. So is that correct? Yeah. It, well, it depends on um, which iwi you talk to as to whether they recognize seven stars or nine stars. More recently, people have started to talk about nine stars as Māori researchers have found out more about the histories, the oral histories that were lost for so long. So it really depends on what area and what iwi you talk to, but um, it is harder to see nine than it is to see seven because we're looking at the brightest stars, the ones that are a little bit closer to us. So yeah, it really depends. There are approximately 500 stars that make up that star cluster, that group of stars. But of course, you can't see those unless you look through a, a telescope. So it would depend on how clear the night sky is, where you are, um, and whether you've got good long sight or not to, as to which stars you can see or whether you've got a telescope. So that, that is up for debate. Um, there is a picture on the Loons website that um, shows you the nine stars that are now recognised. So you can have a look at that if you're interested. Thanks. Um, from uh, yesterday's speaking school, Pukakui, oh no, it's not Pukakui, Pukakui Hill School. So they went to speaking school, room 22. Where did sailors like Captain Cook stop to get food and supplies for their trips? So I presume that, I mean, I presume they want to know what New Zealand places they stopped at. Any ideas, Brad? Um, they stopped a lot of places. A lot of the reasons for a lot of Captain Cook's visits and stopovers in, in uh, New Zealand were to make astronomical observations. So uh, they did that in Dusky Sound because they wanted to map the transit of Venus. So the, uh, the tracking of Venus as it moves across the face of the sun, um, using those observations, they get a better idea of the shape of the Earth. And that was, that was one of the rationales for stopping by. So, um, of course, at the same time, they took on a lot of fresh water. And uh, I believe Captain Cook brewed a beer while he was down there. Um, so, you know, one of, some of his men did anyway. So, um, yeah, those, those were, those were the reason, primary reasons to stop. But um, certainly uh, the secondary reasons would be to, to stock up on fruit and vegetables. And, um, you know, he took a very holistic approach to his, uh, the health of his crew. So he wanted to make sure they were healthy. So it would have always been a very primary concern to also stop for those fresh fruit, vegetables and water so all over the show. Mm, and looking forward to going to Ship Cove later today, um, an area that Cook spent a lot of time on his three voyages to Aotearoa. And I guess he would have spent a lot of time there because it was quite sheltered. And we all know that the, the climate here in the Marlborough Sounds, maybe today aside, is <laughs> usually pretty good. So a great place to shelter, collect that fresh water and fresh food supplies. Thank you. So also um, Cook named Poverty Bay, not because it didn't have any food, it's just that he couldn't, because of a, a, an early encounter that didn't go very well, he was unable to trade for food that they wanted there. Um, mm. Anyway, moving on, so Pukakua Hill School again, room 22, want to know how would sailors repair ships while at sea? And I do know that Cook did land in um, Fiordland and they um, cut a new mast out of the forest. So I don't know how, oh, and there was also a problem in Australia. So um, 
where they ran aground. But so that often they, they have to do um, repairs at sea if they run aground, yeah? That's that's correct. So uh, they'll, they'll, um, with, with that grounding in particular, they had to uh, pump a lot of the water out that was coming on board the ship and look at repairing it uh, while they waited for the tide to come up. There are some repairs you can do while you're at sea on a ship like that and some repairs you can't. Obviously, the mast is a big one because uh, you need to about better replace it. Um, which you can't just conjure a bit up uh, at sea, unfortunately. So you have to go ashore and find one. Um, and some of the other major repairs, you might, might need more stable um, conditions to do. So, um, But all the, all, the, all the minor repairs, like if the railing or something like that or the decks they're replacing, that stuff can all be done as long as you've got the wood to do it. Yeah, so I imagine they would have supplies to uh, fix things that they'd expect might break. And I think they used to have people that would uh, make sails and know how to sew sails and all that sort of stuff on board as well. So I presume on Waka they would have things as well. And isn't there a term called caulking, C-A-U-L-K-I-N-G, where you are able to put something over a hole so the water doesn't get in, I think. Sounds familiar. That's, that's correct, yep. yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, I'm sure sorry. they would have carried a few tippets with them to, to do that. Another one from Pukakui Hill School, which I think is a really good question. Do captains today still train to navigate using these older methods in case modern technology fails while they're out at sea? Mm, good question. Good question, and the answer to that is yes, they do. They do, and uh, so depending on the age of the captain, I've found they um, they're quite proud of the fact that they can uh, navigate without computers, navigate without GPS. Um, I think the the important thing to understand is when you are trying to navigate using one of these, is it's um, it's accuracy. It's not as accurate as GPS, so um, and they're very mindful of that too. So uh, yeah, no, they do train uh, and they do understand how to navigate these ways. Mm, interesting. Yep, and I think uh, pilots can still do that as well in, uh, in the air. Um, expert and intermediate and other people have asked, can only New Zealand see Matariki or can other countries? And can every country in the world see Matariki? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I learned a lot about this when I was putting together the background pages for this website. And I found out that uh, the name Subaru, or Subaru, if you're Australian, <laughs> um, is the Matariki Star Cluster from Japan. It's the Japanese name for that star cluster. And there are various other names. There's a Hawaiian name on the website that you can find. Um, there's the Greek name, and I never know how to pronounce it, property, Pleiades, um, Ple yeah, that one. Yeah, that question on the course recently. <laughs> why do you pronounce Pleiades? Pleiades. Pleiades. Verdict's not on that one. Pleiades. It's, it's spelled something like P-L-E-I-A-D-E. Yeah. So, yeah, and, yeah. and there's a lot of Greek mythology around that. Um, and, of course, that's seen from the Northern Hemisphere. So it looks... At, quite different from the way we see it in the southern hemisphere um, just like uh, other star clusters look different star constellations as well look different in the southern hemisphere so you can have a bit of a search online to find out more about the Masariki star cluster what it's called in different cultures um, from Natamoti how did the sextant get its name 
That's a good one because it is a bit of a weird name, isn't it? It is. I think. I think. Uh, yeah. I think uh, well, sect is uh, what's that? Five or six? Mm. Dividing a circle into five or six. Six. So um, the angle of arc that it covers is only about a sixth of uh, a 360-degree turn. Um, I think that that's where it gets its name uh, because there's also another instrument called a quant or a quadrant, and uh, I think that has a, sh a shorter, or sorry, a lot, sorry, a longer, um, so a quarter of a circle. Right. Thanks. So not to be confused with not other things. Not to be confused. Oh, <laughs> uh, this would probably be a good question for about uh, Waka and for um, all crew, where did Captain Cook go to the toilet on the ship? And I guess what happened, they didn't have proper plumbing in those days. No, there weren't any strict rules about such things, Fred? Um, no, but um, I think ships of that era, um, they did have a, an area where you could go to the toilet. I think the officers did tend to have a separate area to the rest of the crew, um, being the privilege of the time. Um, but um, having said that, though, uh, Sanitation was quite important to Cook, um, and um, he sort of thought that maybe they didn't really know what caused scurvy back then. They had a rough idea, but um, one of the causes of that could have contributing causes could have been bad sanitation, bad toilets, bad hygiene from from bad toilets. So um, yeah, typically there was a toilet area inside the boat, and it sort of flowed directly out to sea. And uh, yeah. Yep, got, got rid of it off got the got ship off to the ship keep everyone quick. healthy, but yeah. um, not. Not so good for the environment, but luckily back in those days, there were very few ships uh, travelling around the Pacific. Chop in the ocean, as they say. <laughs> yes. We have learned so many things since then, and there's so many more of us, so we have to be so much more careful. Um, from Rebecca Wilcott, who was the first to see Matariki, and when was it first celebrated? Oh, I don't know whether that's possible to answer, Brad. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't hazard a guess. So the earliest of peoples would have seen it and um, they would have begun to note its significance and how it meant to them. Um, so it's very hard to track that back um, through through history. Mm. I did learn yesterday that Matariki has three different names depending on what season you see it in the night sky. So it's called Matariki only when it rises in, in midwinter and um, marks that start of the the Māori New Year, um, but the first person to see it, it would be so long ago and that um, information would have been passed on orally um, through generations and I think it would be impossible to track um, who who that person was or even what iwi they came from, what area of New Zealand, so sorry, not possible to answer that one. Cool, thanks. Um, Nightstream School would want to know, did Captain Cook hunt whales while on the Endeavour? Good question. Good question. I, I haven't heard any instances of him hunting whales, but certainly at the time, whaling was, was an in vogue thing. Um, most seals? of what? Most seals? Of the old seals, I think they did do. I think they, they, uh, they did go yeah. chasing after seals. Um, I, I could imagine that they'd be able to hunt seals when they were ashore quite easily, but they may not have had a harpoon and those kind of things that they would need to hunt whales and, and the space to be able to haul a whale on board. Um, 
if you do a bit of research, you'll be able to see the kind of boats that whalers used, and I don't know that Cook would have had that you ability. Set up a particular way to get whales, that's right. Yeah, they uh, might have tried to hunt little ones, I don't know. No. Certainly the first Europeans to follow after Cook were um, whalers and sealers and they set up stations all around New Zealand and and uh, continued the work of navigating New Zealand after Cook. Yep. Yeah. Interesting question. Okay, we've got time for just two more. Okay, this is um, related to yesterday's one from Corey and I thought was a really good answer. Yesterday Corey asked about why is it important to know um, how Maori navigated today. He'd like to know why is it important to know and for us to look back on why and how Captain Cook navigated. Mm, good, good question. That's a good question. Um, I guess it's important to know if we lose GPS, for example. Um, it's highly unlikely because there's replacement constellation satellites out there for Galileo and uh, GLONASS. Um, so if one goes down, the rest can pick up the slack. But um, a lot of the old information that's found on our, um, on our nautical charts can come from these old sources. So it's important to understand uh, how inaccurate the information can be, um, given the tools they had at the time. So you can then make an assessment of whether you should trust that information when you're driving a boat through an area. So a lot of the Pacific has, uh, has navigations and fathoms and uh, they used a sextant to do all their uh, horizontal positioning. So um, they can be, things can be out by a bit. So it's worthwhile knowing how things were done and sort of recognising the limitations of that. Mm, and also remembering the achievements of people in, in times past and how they've paved the way um, for how we are today. Um, that's the good, bad and the ugly, really, as we look at Tuia 250, the commemoration of um, the first encounters here in Aotearoa. Some of them went well, some of them didn't, but if we don't look back on them and remember what happened, then we can't um, build on a successful future. So it's really important to look at our history and how it's shaped us and, and what we might want to do differently um, in, in the future. So a really good question. Thank you. Well, that was the last one. Now, just um, students, when you put your um, question in the chat, you only need to put it in there once. So I've just kicked somebody off who's pasted gazillions in there, so over and over. So we've worked from top to bottom and we've run out of time. So Fantastic. Well, good to see those that are able to use the chat pod um, well and uh, getting us great questions. It's been a pleasure talking to you today and I'm really looking forward to heading out into the Marlborough Sounds and a big thank you to Brad for such great answers. Thanks Brad. And you can listen to a recording of this. It'll be available later on today and stay on the website for you to reference anytime thereafter. And if you've got more burning questions, you can join us again tomorrow at 9.15 for the last Matariki and Navigation web conference. So 9.15 tomorrow. We'll see you then. But in the meantime, you can unmute your microphone and we can all say a big bye.